Speaks Radio. So sorry for the inconvenience we had again today with Blog Talk Radio and their platform not working. This girl's not a very happy camper with the service there. So thank God for Zoom. Um, today I want to welcome again everyone to to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. We're going to have a great show for you. Um, for those of you that are new, Alzheimer Speaks is an advocacy-based program providing multiple platforms to shift our Dementia Care from Crisis to Comfort around the world. And we do that by our radio show, our website, um, keynotes and, and training, Dementia Chats, where I facilitate a conversation with people who actually have dementia. And without you, our listeners, we would be nowhere. So thank you so much for all of your likes, clicks, and shares. You've made a huge, huge difference in terms of getting the word spread, because we are all about um, raising everyone's voice so that products, tools, and services can be found easily and had. So thank you, and please consider being one of our guests on our show. Just reach out to me at Alzheimer Speaks, and I would be glad to talk with you. Now, before I introduce our guest today, I have to give a shout-out to Stall Catchers. Um, that is a game that was created by Eyes on Alls and is in uh, collaboration with Cornell uh, University. And on April 13th, they are having a megathon where they wanna get 100,000 people to virtually play the stall catcher game. Now in doing this, there's no cost, it's an hour of your time, but if we can get 100,000 people to play the game for one hour, they figure we're gonna be able to analyze enough data to save researchers a year in time. It's quite incredible. They'll have a leaderboard going so you'll be able to see exactly what's going on. And you can go to stallcatchers.com or go to megathon.us and get more information um, on that. I also want to give a shout out to uh, Dementia um, Action Alliance. They're having their second North American Dementia Conference June 20th through the 22nd down in um, Atlanta, Georgia. So just go to daanow.org um, and you'll be able to find out information on that. And then the last one I wanna give a shout out to is the um, Princeton Act on Alzheimer's Group. I'm actually gonna be running up there this afternoon, um, Tuesday, April 2nd from 6.30 to 8.30. And we're gonna be doing a screening and talk back on the film, A Timeless Love, which was previously known as His Neighbor Phil. It'll be at the Trinity Crossing up in Princeton, Minnesota. And I'm looking forward to seeing all the peeps up there. So that will be um, just a fun, fun time. So let's get on with our show today. We are so lucky um, to have our guest with us. She is a fabulous writer. She's also a podcaster. Her name is Janice Panarista. Is that correct, Janice? <laughs> 
Panaritis. Panaritis. Okay, yes. Panaritis. Thank you. I always a hard Greek name. Um, and she is the founder of AgeWise, which is a media group. She's the author of a book called Scattered, My Year as an Accidental Caregiver. And she is the host of the podcast at AgeWise as well. And AgeWise is spelled A-G-E-W-Y-Z. And it's a weekly radio show that features really frank talking and lively conversation. She has great questions kind of out of the ordinary with caregivers and professionals in the field of aging, um, people using film and theater and other forms of media to creatively work together to, to address major health issues and challenges um, regarding aging and so she's just she's quite the little character and a lot of fun and full of energy and I was uh, I was thrilled to be on her show not too long ago and it was just such a pleasure unlike the, the what she's been having with my show where blog talk has crashed and died twice on us <laughs> so the woman's got patience so thank you for joining us today Jana and, and jumping platforms I appreciate it so much oh my pleasure it's great to be with you Lori thank well, you to start out can you tell I always ask every every guest this um have you been personally touched by dementia because our our audience doesn't know that and it's just a, a nice thing for them to hear oh yes um, it's interesting because I didn't know I was being touched by dementia until uh, my mother was really in the throes of it. And the reason is that I noticed, I observed behavior that I thought was grief related. So um, my mother was grief stricken after my father died and I moved in with her into my childhood home. And what I was observing as grief later was... Uh, defined as dementia and then ultimately she was diagnosed with the early stages of alzheimer's in 2012 wow and, and those symptoms they just mirror one another it's really yeah. really hard to tell you know what's what well can you share with our audience what are some of the biggest learning lessons that that came from living with your mother you know after your dad died i'm sure there's quite a few of them well, there are. Um, like a lot of people, um, when you lose a parent, I experienced a second coming of age. Um, my father died in late 2009, and I moved in with my mother in 2010. And my father died suddenly. He was asymptomatic. He woke up to use the bathroom one night. He dropped on the floor, and he never regained consciousness. And he had had an aneurysm so on his heart. So my mother's grief was mixed in with, at that stage, what was, un, as I referenced earlier, undiagnosed Alzheimer's disease. And I was really kind of flying blind in the sense that I had no benchmarks of any kind for grief or for caregiving or for dementia. Uh, so I really learned how to step up. I don't have kids, so I never had to be responsible for anyone else. And in a way, caring for my mother allowed me to experience the motherhood I never had. <laughs> And so as, as with all new mothers, I got better at it over time. Um, <laughs> but I learned that I learned how to step up really for someone else. And my mother was really counting on me in a way that she had, she never had. And in a way that I'd count on her in my childhood, like so many of us who become our, our parents caregivers. Um, I learned flexibility. 
Um, I expanded my idea of how things are supposed to be. I let go and I learned to accept things as they were and to make adjustments around that. And the patients that you referred to earlier in me, I probably developed some of that earlier on when I was living with my mom. Um, I learned also that I couldn't fix my mother, but that being with her and being present with her was really all she wanted. I am a fixer. Like, I think you are too. A lot of us are like type A's. We want to fix things. And I learned that I couldn't fix her, but she didn't want to be fixed. She just wanted me to be with her. Uh, and that was really important. Um, I learned to ask for help from people who were willing to give it to me. And this is a big distinguishing uh, factor. I, I like to say that you, you should ask for, pe for help from people who will give it to you. People want to help. They just don't know how. Um, so I learned to ask for it from the people that I knew could give it to me, not people who said, oh, I have something else going on that day, but I'll come the next day. You know, you, you, people are always making excuses uh, for why they can't help you. So I just learned to not even ask those people anymore. Uh, and I will not name names. Um, but I also, <laughs> I really came to appreciate the totality of my parents' life and how dependent they were on each other and the beauty of that dependence on each other, but then also the, downs, the downside, which kind of dovetails with themes in my book. And finally, I guess I would say that I learned that I am most competent during a crisis and that I'm really good at thinking fast on my feet. And I think that as caregivers, especially as Alzheimer's caregivers, we learn to be really, really nimble. And uh, I learned that living with my mom. Wow, lots of life lessons. First of all, I have to thank your mom for, uh, for helping out with the patience piece. I think my mom did that for me as well. <laughs> I know when I was younger and I was working in a, a group home with uh, developmentally disabled, my mom would come home and go, how do you have patience for everyone else but in our house? <laughs> you know? and, and so I think I got a little better with that. But again, it fell under that crisis mode you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you had mentioned that you learned to ask for help from people that would give it to you. How did you figure that out, or was it pretty blatant? You know, I think I just kept hearing no from a couple of people <laughs> um, over and over and over again, and I got so frustrated that it just it just hit me that I should just stop asking. I should look for help in other areas. And I did. Um, you know, you reach that point where you just get tired of hearing, oh, I have to work that day or I have a meeting that night or no, we're going away that weekend. Um, can I do it? You know, you just get, you just, you just block it out at a certain point. You don't want to hear it anymore. And I, I just reached a tipping point where <laughs> I just said, thanks, but no thanks. And I lowered my expectations for that person, for those people, I should say. Yeah. Well, and I think too, it just lessens the frustration that you're carrying when, right. like you said, when your expectations are here, but they're down here or over here or just not even, you know, in the square anymore of, yeah. of the realm of possibilities. And so <laughs> I, I went through that same thing. It was just like, it's just easier to not go there. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's a survival technique. You also talked about, um, realizing you're most competent during a crisis and you know to me and I don't know if this is what it was like for you but for me there was just that peacefulness within even though it was 
on high adrenaline marching through knowing I got this. Yeah. We're, we're going to get to the other side. Yeah. And, and you yeah. don't really kind of think in the middle, you just, you're just going through it. You're plucking through the mud and in the goo and just going to get out the other side. That. Um, now, why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? Because I think everybody can relate to feeling scattered, uh, <laughs> you know, especially when, when dealing with dementia. Right. So as I mentioned, after my dad, after my father died, mom and I lived together for just over three years. And the book is really focused on that first roller coaster year of our living together when neither one of us had any idea of what the future held or could even imagine really what it looked like. Um, for me, because my career was stalled and I, and I was grief stricken. And for my mother, because she literally thought her life was over. I mean, there was a conversation we had in the car at one point where she said to me, my life is over. And I said, please don't say that. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, having already lost one parent, I was terrified of, of losing another parent. So I, you know, as I said to my mom, please, your life is not over. I need you. I, I said to her, I need you. And, you know, for the survivors of, of death, um, it has a way of both freezing you and galvanizing you. I think my mother was kind of frozen in her tracks or stuck and I was galvanized. Um, I was panic stricken in some ways, but I knew also that I had to figure out what was next for both of us. So in a nutshell, the book is really about my experience of rebuilding two lives at once, both my mother's and my own. And I, I call it a journey of reinvention inspired by love and a dwindling bank account <laughs> because I was trying to remake my career, um, you know, drilling down. It's a sort of a story of my attempting to advance my career while attending to a lot of medical appointments, household chores, and a flood of grief-related emotions that my mom was going through. Um, I, I guess thematically, it's really about optimism and perseverance, family loyalty, the strain of caregiving, and it's called accidental caregiver for a reason. And I really didn't know this word caregiver. I've heard this from other people who have became caregivers. I had never even heard this word caregiver. Um, but I did, so I didn't know that's what I was doing. So I, I sort of like a lot of caregivers, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So in that sense, it felt sort of an accidental, all of a sudden I was responsible for my mother and I was completely unprepared for this role that was thrust on me. Uh, the book is, is really, it's less of a how-to self-help book more, it's more of a, you, you sort of dive in and you have the, the, the lived experience of a daughter who is scrambling to keep up with the demands of her own life and the needs of her elderly parent who is grief stricken and unbeknownst to you at the time, experiencing dementia symptoms later reveals to be Alzheimer's. So when you started to write the book, um, did you know you were writing a book? I mean, sometimes people just start writing and then and then they're like, oh, this this could be a book. Um, or did you start just knowing this is going to be a book? Yeah, I, I really deliberately set out to write a full book. And the reality is, is that I wrote the book because I ran out of other options. When I was living with my mother, I also, I have a background in television and film production, and I developed um, a series with a, a writing partner for uh, Discovery Studios that we pitched that ultimately did not get picked up. 
But I looked upon this time of living with my mother as a period of experimentation where I could experiment with my career. And um, I, I kind of had a strange background of being a paralegal and also for my bread and butter, but also having this entertainment background, having worked in television and film production. So I, I, I arrived at the writing of the book after trying lots of other things. I took the foreign service exam. Uh, I thought I might go into the foreign service because I have a master's in public diplomacy. I, I passed the exam, but I did not get invited for an interview. So I finally, it finally dawned on me that, hey, I've always wanted to write a book. Here I am living with my mother. I had no expensive expenses. My mother very generously, you know, paid for all of our expenses. And I guess you could say that in exchange, I was <laughs> caring for her and helping her stay alive. But I arrived at the writing of the book really because all other options appeared to be off the table. And I thought, oh, I'll never have this time. I'll never have this kind of time again in my life where I don't have to worry about paying the bills. So I just started the outline for the book. And uh, it took about four years and I went through many, 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 many drafts. Uh, so yeah, I was deliberate <laughs> to answer your question. Yeah. I think so many people don't think, uh, um, or understand how much work goes into writing a book. Like you said, four years and a zillion drafts. I, I, Cause there's so many people who go, I'm just going to write a book. And it's like, it, it just, it's not like dropping an egg. It doesn't, it doesn't happen yeah. Yeah. that quickly. Right. And, and, uh, I know I've, I've started and I've never finished. I've, I, I have this file folder full of stories and stuff, mm -hmm. but I just, I haven't slowed down because it really, you have to carve out that space and that time to, to really dive deep into it and structure it and, and, you know, what is your flow and what is your message, all of those types of things. So it's it's, very time consuming. yeah, it sounds like a, a great book for anybody on this journey or just trying to figure out their path in the world when things change, yeah. um, you know, when that curveball is thrown um, and, and how do you, how do you persevere, you know, through that and, mm -hmm. and figure out what is your true purpose? Now, you launched the Age Wise podcast. Tell us a little bit more about that, when it, when it started and why you decided to start the podcast. Sure. So while I was writing the book, of course, when you're going through something, you tend to notice in the news or elsewhere every instance of what you're going through, right? So I was reading in the newspaper occasional articles about caregiving. And um, so during the writing of the book, I was really shocked to learn that there were literally millions of other people out there like me who were caring for parents or friends or relatives and really scrambling to keep up. And I thought, I, I don't know how I did it. How are they doing it? And so I, I, was, I always wondered too, why, why aren't I hearing the stories? I, I was hearing a lot about the data and because we live in a data-driven culture, this makes sense, but I wanted to hear the stories. I wanted to hear about the people behind the numbers. So I, cause my, I wondered how do they juggle caregiving with everything else that's going on in their lives? And so, as I mentioned before, I had, a re I had a background in entertainment. I had done radio broadcast in college, and I love, the, I love the intimacy of podcasting, and I love the idea that it could be used to advance a cause. And in this case, the cause for me was celebrating this heroic work of what is clearly a hidden workforce of caregivers. And, um, and also, I wanted to give the people who are actually doing the work of care a platform to share their stories, because I believe that stories are what 
really help us emotionally gain traction around issues and help us to move the needle on issues. So I wanted uh, to give a platform for caregivers to, to tell their stories, to in a way sort of reshape the narrative, to get beyond the statistics and say, this is what it looks like. This is how it's affecting my life, my relationships, my career. And as you mentioned in the intro, I also interview professionals in the field of aging and creative types. So it's, it's really all about story. Even the professionals in the field who I interview all tend to come into the work of aging from a personal experience of it, which is fascinating. And it makes the work that they're doing, I think, much more powerful and tangible. And I think it gives them a lot of uh, credibility for the work that they're doing. Um, and specifically because it's so widespread, I really wanted to address dementia in the podcast. Um, you know, because my mom has dementia, I really wanted to challenge the story of dementia. Uh, it's a narrative that, as you know, is, is largely ground in fear. And I wanted to push back on that um, because my experience with my mother who has dementia opened my, eye, my eyes to the idea that dementia really presents an opportunity to see other sides of an individual. Um, we're all so complicated to begin with, even those, those of us who don't have dementia, right? So <laughs> I wanted to give voice to both the caregivers and people with dementia so that they can control the dementia narrative and get beyond what Bill Thomas calls the tragedy narrative of dementia. Um, and rather than having this sort of steady drone of statistics and this awful end stage pronouncements in the, me in the media. And not, not in any way to sugarcoat it because, you know, factually, we know that people decline and experience horrible frustrations and it's grim at the end of Alzheimer's. But uh, there is a lot to be learned and a lot to learn from people with dementia. And I just wanted to, in some way to change that narrative a little bit by hearing from people actually who are caregivers for folks with dementia and dementia patients. Uh, I shouldn't say patients. Um, I, I recently interviewed somebody who is living with dementia, Brian LeBlanc, and he said to me, I am only a patient to my doctor. I am not a patient to you. And he wasn't directing this at me, but he said, I am only a patient to my doctor. So please don't refer to me as a patient. So I have to correct myself there. <laughs> Yeah, well, and that is a common term used, and they just, you know, they want to be seen as themselves, not as a disease, which we all we all do. You know, we don't walk around saying, hey, I'm diabetes or heart disease or cancer or, or whatever. And, um, but again, it all comes back to what we have been taught, that whole push of fear. Mm -hmm. and, and that, that change um, comes very slowly. You know, I've been doing this since, um, 2009 and, and very aligned with you that stories are important and all voices need to be heard and uh, you know to really change what we're doing and how we're doing it and and it's taken a very very long time um, but I'm seeing some big changes not near what we need yet but I mean the needle is definitely moved in terms of having a conversation about what is person-centered or relationship-based care and, mm -hmm. and why, why the person should be in the middle and should be viewed, you know, as the expert because they've got great insights and lessons to teach us. And, uh, 
uh, it, yeah, it's important, important conversation. What are some of the more memorable stories that you've heard from guests on your podcast? You mentioned with Brian giving you that lesson of, you know, my doctor can call me a patient, but you not so much or anyone else. <laughs> yeah, Brian was really great. He shared some social situations with me that he found, fortunately, he has a sense of humor. And he actually is an international advocate for Alzheimer's and he's, and he speaks, <laughs> Alzheimer's speaks. Uh, he speaks out a lot. And he told this really funny story. Fortunately, it was funny to him. It might have offended someone else, but he was in a mall somewhere with his wife and they ran into some friends and, and Brian is from New Orleans. So he's got a real deep Southern accent. And he said he and his wife were in the mall and they ran into some friends of theirs and he had been diagnosed and so I guess some of their friends knew that he had Alzheimer's. And when he was in the mall with his wife, he, they saw some friends and they said, hey, hey, y'all, how you doing? And the woman leaned into Brian's wife and said in a low whisper, how's he doing? And <laughs> Brian leaned over and said, I'm doing fine and I can hear you. <laughs> Sort of this idea that somebody with Alzheimer's can't hear anymore or they're not necessarily alert to their surroundings. So this was kind of funny. Um, I, I interviewed, this is not Alzheimer's related, but I interviewed this really dynamic woman who uh, lives in New Zealand and her name is Billy Jordan. And Billy survived a major earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand a long, long time ago. Um, but she was so traumatized from seeing people die in front of her that she wound up moving to this little island called Waikiki Island and off the coast of New Zealand. And she bonded instantly with the senior citizens there because the senior citizens were thinking a lot about death. And Billy had just seen people die in front of her in this earthquake. And so she came up with this idea of uh, she figured if everyone was going to die, why not go out dancing? And so she founded this um, academy called the Hip Operation Dance Academy. And it's tailored for people ages 72 to 96. And the whole idea is to defy ageist stereotypes. And the, the troupe has been completely reborn, been reborn through dance. Um, and Billy shared this sort of grueling but also hilarious experience that she had of caring for training and managing her senior dancers on the road to performing at the world hip hop championship in Las Vegas. So she had her hands full even before they left for Las Vegas. Um, and on the plane, <laughs> but the, the, it, it was a self-funded trip. The, the trip was entirely self-funded. The dance troupe didn't have a sponsor, uh, but they got cheap airfares. And so they all got on the plane. And when the, the as, as, as Billy refers to as the drinks trolley, she said, when the drinks trolley came around, the leader of the troupe, the dance troupe, who was 94, she learned that the drinks were free and she started chugging them back. So by the time the plane landed in Vegas, this 94-year-old had passed out completely drunk. And they cleared the plane, they checked her vitals, they put her in a wheelchair to get her into the terminal. And as she half woke up, she started singing happy birthday. And Billy said, I don't know who it was to because it was no one's birthday. But she, Billy was really nervous because this was their media spokesperson and she was completely out to lunch. So then all of a sudden, Billy realized, my God, she's got no teeth. And it dawned on Billy that 
before the plane landed, she had tried to sober up this woman, this 94-year-old, with scrambled eggs, but that didn't work. And as Billy said, nine sick bags later, she realized that the woman's teeth must have popped out and gone into one of the sick bags. So she pleaded with the flight attendant to check the sick bags. And they said, we have about 200 sick bags. That's how many we collect on a a long flight like this from New Zealand to Las Vegas. But the flight staff went through all the sick sick bags and they found the 94-year-old's teeth. And as Billy says, they found her teeth, they rinsed them off and they shoved them back in her mouth and on they went. And on they went. Um, so there's more to the story. This is episode number 64, if anyone wants to check that out. It's called Billy Jordan Going Out Dancing. Uh, and then I have another story that's Alzheimer's related, but I don't know how much time we have. So oh, I don't no, know. we are good. That is a hilarious <laughs> It was story. really funny the way she tells it. Well, yeah. and then it gives a whole, you know, when you said the, the hip-hop world, it just gives a whole other impression of hip-hop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was actually a documentary film um, made about this whole experience of the troop being taken to Las Vegas. And um, there's a link to the trailer uh, on the website on the show that uh, the episode that that contains that 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 chat. So yeah, that was a she, Billy is very very entertaining. So fun. Well, if you want to share another story, that would be fine. We've got time. Okay. Okay. So this story is Alzheimer's related, and it's an interview that I did with a woman named Dana Walrath. And I met Dana at a conference in Vermont called Comics and Medicine. And I don't know how I got roped into this being on this panel because I'm, I'm not a cartoonist, but anyhow, I do know, but that's a whole other story. Uh, Dana wasn't on that panel, but she presented uh, on another panel. Dana is a writer and an artist and an anthropologist, and she's now on a sabbatical from teaching uh, medical humanities at the University of Mont, and, and she's on a sabbatical in Ireland. Um, anyway, on the show, she talked about her graphic memoir, which is called Alzheimer's Through the Looking Glass. And for people who don't know, graphic novels are just stories told in comic form, like Ross Chess. People know that. Can we talk about something more pleasant? Um, Alice and Bechdel, Fun Home, or even the Mouse series by Art Spiegelman. So it's graphic memoir is a really interesting, graphic medicine, the movement is really interesting because it's using comics to tell stories about illness and health. Anyhow, so my interview with Dana was especially, what was especially memorable was her explanation of how her book evolved. Her mother's name is Alice. She's no longer living, but her mother, Alice, had been a voracious reader all her life. And during the time that she was living with Dana, Dana noticed that as her mother's dementia progressed, it became harder and harder for her to read. But her mother could read comics. And she ate up everything that came into the house, graphic novels, graphic memoirs. And Dana was getting an MFA at the time, and she had this art background. So she decided to tell her story, to tell their story in the form of a graphic memoir so that people with dementia could access it more easily. And it's really magical because her book combines drawings and stories that chronicle her three years of caregiving for her mother, Alice, when she was in the middle of middle stages of Alzheimer's disease. And it speaks to the power of comics to to connect with people who have Alzheimer's and related dementia, to connect with their imaginations, which are still, as we know, very much alive. Uh, So Dana also talked about how living with her mother gave her an opportunity to make peace with her mother 
despite their historically difficult relationship. So that was really memorable. And, and Dana's approach is so unique because she's not just an artist, but she's an anthropologist. And she's now uh, an Atlantic Fellow for Equity in Brain Health at the Global Brain Health Institute, where she is developing a second graphic memoir focusing on the end stages of dementia and dementia across cultures. So again, it's just a different entry point into talking about Alzheimer's. And, and Dana also is a big believer that, you know, too much attention is focused on medicalizing the disease. And she, like you and I, see it as an opportunity, uh, you know, to see the other side of somebody, just to be silly and improvisational and to have fun and to free ourselves from the constraints of, of what we think Alzheimer's and dementia is all about, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Makes a ton of sense. Um, <laughs> a lot of the stories and, and the variety of people that you're interviewing, it's, it's so much fun. I mean, it's just such an honor to be in the position you're in, the position I'm in, to be able to hear these stories and share them with people because like you said earlier, they are so very, very powerful and the world needs more of them to kind of lighten up and get creative and, and not be so fearful. Yeah. What kind of advice do you have for folks who are caring for a loved one or a family member um, with Alzheimer's or some form of related dementia? Well, so this ties in with sort of one of my biggest learnings from my mom, which as which really came a lot, a lot later because I just I really didn't get it for a long time um, I had to get beyond the tragedy narrative as I referred to earlier of Alzheimer's uh, and and I and I and I would advise people to embrace the adventure that you're on with the person who has dementia and celebrate what's left in your loved one and even discover new things recognizing of course that there are bumps um, when my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, I'll never forget this. It was at Johns Hopkins University by a prominent uh, psychiatrist. And she had had two three-hour neuropsychological exams one year apart. So it was very uh, helpful in terms of comparing a year you know, apart, these two in-depth psychological exams. And when he told me that she had early stages of Alzheimer's, I was very fearful and I wanted to know, I was focusing on the medical aspects of the disease, and I wanted to know the, medic, the, the, the medical explanation behind it. And the doctor made a really impression, in, 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 left a big impression on me when he said, don't focus on the medical side, focus on what you can still do with her and how you can still enjoy your life with her. So that was a big learning for me, and I hope something that others uh, can take and learn from. I would say find community as with, with Lori, with your site and share what you're going through. I mean, Lori has all kinds of wonderful, wonderful channels to access support. And I would say take advantage of the all, any form of community that you can find around Alzheimer's uh, because you're going to need that support. Uh, I would also say pay attention to the actions of people with Alzheimer's because when they find it, difficult to form thoughts or construct complete sentences or can no longer speak, they'll show you with their actions what they're trying to tell you. And I'm doing that more and more with my mother now. I know when she pushes out the footstool <laughs> that she needs help going to the bathroom. It's just one of those keys. She doesn't have to tell me. I know it. 
So I would say she still has language skills, but I've learned to read between the lines. And so you kind of have to, you know, tune, fine tune your perception, your spidey skills and, and um, enter and uh, get used to sort of reading between the lines. I also say that it's, it's great if you can embrace the world of improv, enter the other person's world, say yes. And like, just go with the flow. Whenever my mom says something that's completely random, I say, yes. And (laughs) And she'll say, that's it. Or else she'll continue. And, you know, just, just let it flow. But the one piece of advice that I have that I hope if you don't remember anything else is to be brave and to take care of yourself. And most of all, to never forget how extraordinary you are because maybe you had a fight with a person that you're caring for and you regret what you said. Um, The important thing to remember is that you show up and you show up every day. You don't parachute in like some family members or friends who drop in and spend an hour and offer advice you don't need. You are there every day making sure your loved one is eating well, taking their meds, and maybe you're even waking up in the middle of the night because your loved one is agitated and wakes up and wanders. You show up every day and you are worth celebrating. And being a caregiver is really hard work. But I have been there and I survived and you will too. So I just want all caregivers to remember that you are exceptional, you are extraordinary people, and I for one, appreciate all the work that you're doing. Oh, wonderful, wonderful um, information. You had, you had talked about um, oh, so many good points there. One was watching for their actions. And that's such a simple one to do, but we, we get so busy in our world today and we forget um, all these clues. In fact, I'm interviewing a man from the Netherlands, his name is Gert Benninger, and he has a book called, um, how I believe it's called, Moving On by Standing Still. And he, one of his <laughs> goals is to get everyone to stop using the term behavior and look at it as a clue or uh, a signal, you know, for us to be able to figure out why is somebody doing what they're doing. Because we all do something for a reason. And a person with dementia is absolutely no different. Such a good point. Talked about improv, which I love, and I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dementia Raw with uh, Tammy Newman and Kathy Braxton, but they actually have a a caregiver uh, training now that is about oh. improv, and it's two days, and I I took it, and it was so much fun. And Great. We're going, oh, you know, I don't know what I'm really doing here, and I'm I'm not that funny, you know, <laughs> and people think it's got to be you know, comedy, and it really isn't. It's, it's about letting go and staying in the moment, and they are so supportive. Even when you're not getting it, you know, they, they have this way to support you through it and tell you until you do get the different methods, and they've got a, a great book about that. Um, taking care of yourself, you had mentioned, uh, you know, that's always the last on everybody's list, but we've got to get that to get people to push it up on the list, because as you know, and I know, and so many others, we can't take good care of someone else if we're not healthy, if we're not balanced, because all of our little, um, you know, the emotions come out and they're reading them from us. You know, the person with dementia is still able to read all those nonverbals. And many tell me that 
they are even more in tune to our nonverbals because yeah. having more problem with language. So when we go in with that Stepford wife smile, but our <laughs> insides are not, they know it. Yeah, and then they mirror it back to us. Then we're like, what's wrong with you? And they're like, I was fine until you came in. <laughs> so, um, you know, realizing that. And then um, you also mentioned, I think, which was really important about, you know, sometimes we, we have a fight or we, we react in a way. And I know I did this with my, with my own mom where I wasn't proud that I snapped, you know, I knew she deserved more. And a person with dementia is typically very forgiving. They give mm -hmm. us another moment in time to do better without judging or bringing that back up into our face, which a lot of every, uh, you know, everyone else would probably go, well, you know, <laughs> you weren't know, fine to me last time. <laughs> but a person with dementia doesn't always remember that, those moments. And not that they can't, because my mom's held on to some moments and I'm like, out of all the things you could remember, why that? <laughs> but, but so often we beat ourselves up and we don't re-enter or we mm -hmm. re-enter ashamed, and mm -hmm. that, again, affects the mood and the moment, and uh, that, to me, is just such a big gift. I know with my mom, um, she ended up being the safest place for me to ever be, because she didn't, she got to that point where she just didn't judge. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't important to her anymore. That ego had kind of left the building, and once you're able to recognize the the safety and the comfort in that, it's just such a huge gift. Because oh, it's such a good point. Because rarely in this world do we do we have those people where we can just be ourselves. Mm -hmm. With the bad, the ugly, whatever, we can just be and breathe and and not worry about what's what somebody thinking. You know. Um, yeah peeking yeah. around the corner at me what's going on you know are they yeah. what, what are they thinking there's there just isn't that it's just this deep deep um unconditional love that that exists if we allow it to right go. right yeah. so true yeah so, so go ahead yeah no i it's just so touching because I, I, I completely relate to what you're saying. The safest place that I feel, even now, my mom is turning 90 on the 8th of April. And um, she's always still so happy to see me. And you just, you just, you never, that never gets old. You know, that never gets old. And you just don't, in this world that is so unpredictable and so difficult. And so we're just, constantly being bombarded by sensory images and mixed messages and pressures in our lives to keep up on so many levels. And when I'm around my mom, it's just such, a, it's, it's calming. It's really, really calming for me to be around her. And she's just so happy to see me. And that calmness is, is so, um, it's invaluable. It really is. And I, you know, one of the things that I think that it's funny when we were talking about the writing of the book and how difficult that is. My favorite phrase with both writing a book and being a caregiver is, oh, I can do that. <laughs> okay, try it, <laughs> you know. Um, but you find out what you're capable of when you're a caregiver, when you are a primary caregiver and you are that person 
you really find out what you're capable of and what you're made of. And for me, losing my dad was such a, such a obviously terrible experience, but I was so afraid of losing my mother that I just did everything I could to help keep her alive. And um, I honestly believe that the two of us pulled through probably the hardest time in our lives because we had each other and because we allowed each other just to be who we were. Uh, it took time for me to get used to my mother because I'd never seen her that way. I'd never seen her in grief. I'd never seen her in dementia. And I was so, I was so anxious most of the time. But uh, I, I learned to be calm, and I learned that my background as a freelance you know, person working in entertainment, I learned that I was probably pretty, pretty well suited for it, you know, having to think fast on my feet. Um, but you really do learn what you're capable of. And I, and I say to all caregivers, just never give up. <laughs> it's a long road. And, and that's one of the other reasons why you really do need to take care of yourself because it's a marathon. And we forget that, you know, we just, we don't know when it's going to end. We think yeah. we do, but we really don't. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. The other thing is, you know, when you mentioned about your mom is kind of the calmest place to be is, first of all, recognizing that she is calm. Because a lot of times we're so busy trying to keep them busy that we don't allow them to be right. calm. <laughs> I know a lot of, I know myself and a lot of others have, have gone through that, got to keep them busy, got to keep them busy. And it's like, yep. it's not, it's not about being busy. It's, it's about appreciating the calm and the peacefulness within them and letting that um, expand and ripple into you and to calm you down and go, you know, we don't have to be in crisis 24 seven. Right. You know, we can, we can still have these beautiful moments of just sitting quietly together without yeah. saying a word, you know? And I think so often we think we have to be busy. You know, we've yeah. got to be doing something. But again, like you mentioned in the very beginning, we can't fix this, but we can make lives better, theirs and ours, um, mm -hmm. if we continue focusing on the relationship at hand. Well, Jana, I can't thank you enough. This has been just a really wonderful conversation. And um, if people can reach you by going to agewise.com. Again, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z.com or Jana at agewise.com. And you can get to the book and the podcast both um, from Agewise as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yep. Wonderful. Well, you have a blessed week and thank you and your mom for your patience and <laughs> pulling this show together. I um, really appreciate it very, very much and best of luck to you in the future. You're doing wonderful work. So thank, thank you. you. Same to you. Blessed. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been really yeah. good. Thanks for all the work that you're doing, Lori. I well, appreciate good. it. Thank you. Um, in wrapping up, I'm just going to give a shout out to uh, Maria Shriver's uh, Women's Alzheimer's Movement. Uh, they'll be doing Move for the Minds again this summer, I'm sure. But you can go and find out more information about what, what she is up to by going to the Women's Alzheimer's Movement dot org the women's alzheimer's movement dot org and earlier i had referred to um, dementia raw with kathy and tammy you can uh, just go to their site dementiaraw.com and like i said they they do kind of an unscripted and unconventional and a very what they call unapologetic way of, of using improv 
um, to give care. And they also have a company called the Silver Dawn Training Institute. But most people just go to DementiaRaw.com uh, to find them. And with that, I'm going to let you all go and can't wait to talk to you next. Thanks so much, everybody. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.